Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for choosing to be with us today. If you'd like to keep up to date with everything that's going on with Education on Fire and also get some free downloadable resources, which is a compilation of some of the wonderful information we share here on the podcast, just go to educationonfire.com, put in your email and we'll send you that directly to your inbox. Now today I'm chatting to Susie Harder. Now Susie is an experienced clinician who devotes much of her passion to working with children who stutter. She works in private practice and the school setting to help support children and provide workshops and consulting-based support to school districts across California. Recently, she's created the Junior Authors Programme, a revolutionary literacy-based platform. Through this programme, children across the world can vote and decide character setting and story details of a book that's being created. Children get to see behind the scenes and connect with her through her fun video posts and Ask the Author live events. And they're empowered by contributing to the content of the book from rough draft to published book on Amazon. So keep listening to find out exactly the story behind this wonderful program and how it was created. But first, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. I'd like to thank the National Association for Primary Education for their continued support and sponsorship of the Education on Fire podcast. In March, they have a brand new conference which is online called Towards the Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on children's education may be perceived as a justification for narrowing the curriculum at the expense of the arts and the humanities. But this conference will explore the case for preserving young children's entitlement to as rich and diverse a curriculum as possible. Dr. Yude's keynote lecture will set the scene, highlighting some key issues and considering some lessons to be learnt from the period of lockdown. The subsequent presentations will focus on classroom practice, providing a spotlight on innovations which have been implemented in school and offering guidance for the future. Now, to find out more about this conference, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash conference. That's nape.org.uk forward slash conference. Hi, Susie. Thank you for coming on the Education on Fire podcast. So delighted for you to be here and to be chatting to us about your junior authors program and also explain a little bit about the experience that you have working in so many schools. So thank you very much. That's wonderful to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. So let's jump first in about that experience, mm-hmm. because I'm always really intrigued about people's perception of education when they have lots of experience in lots of different settings. So give us a little bit of that sort of background and your experience within that. Yeah, so I am a clinical speech pathologist, which means that I work with children and really develop language skills, speech skills, communication skills. And so one of the really neat things about speech pathology is that you work with kids from the time they're two and a half, three, all the way through, or not the same children all the way through, hopefully, <laughs> um, but all the way through high school. And so within the school setting, you're available in the capacity of working with preschool age children, even if they're not yet attending school, but those kids are on your caseload. And then you have, you know, children that are in the elementary school age um, setting and then all the way through into teenage years. And so you get to have a lot of experience with so many different stages of childhood and so many different stages within the educational system. And so um, 
I I find myself being really drawn to the early intervention side of it after having the time and seeing, you know, what what can happen if things are happening really proactively and efficiently and effectively in early childhood and what an impact that makes. And I think any of us that, you know, as parents and as educators would would say that there's a lot of value in those early years. And so I have um I've really enjoyed my time. I worked in Chicago in schools there back here in California. I'm Central California right now. And like I said, everything age-wise from little ones all the way through. And there have been so many wonderful takeaways along the way. (laughs) (laughs) So the, yes, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, let's start with the, the geographic standpoint. Yes. Is it the fact that, you know, a school in Chicago is very different to one in California. And certainly here in the UK, everything is obviously much smaller. So you have some differences within schools, but generally speaking, as a national field. But I know mm-hmm. from, from the US, you've got state um, interventions and, and all that kind of thing as well. Yes. So even just in that geography sense, I guess, as well as the from year to year yes. sense, how, how is that different for you? Yeah, what a good question. I... So when I was in Chicago, uh, you know, there's kind of just in general, even without really focusing on one state, you know, there's kind of the the schools that are in the highly dense areas that have just generally a lower social economic status. And so the school's funding is much different and, um, and kind of the, the situation for children in their daily life is much different. And so in the city of Chicago looks much different than the suburbs of Chicago and same here in central California, where the schools that the school that I'm in right now is, um, you know, we have, we have a lot of children who are homeless and in the foster system. We have a lot of parents that, um, you know, are really fairly unavailable, yet they're working so, so hard to be the best parents they can be. And that looks so different than some of the suburb settings. And And I work in both and I love both. I am private practice as well. So I kind of get to have exposure to both sides. And I'd say from my side, the value of private practice is really neat because you have parents that are so involved and committed. And if I'm suggesting something or we're talking through a home plan, it's very feasible that that is something they're going to follow through with. And in those other settings, I'd say the strength is that you have this really strong family component because they all are so closely knit and parents just love and care for their kids so deeply. And even if they can't physically be the one carrying through with all of the things, they are really so open to ideas and and really just so grateful, which is so neat too. So um, yeah, it, such a difference. And even when I started my practice about, I don't know, five years ago, and I was focusing on kids who stutter. And I was kind of like, I can't not also be in the schools because I love being available in that capacity and having the opportunity to really do effective things uh, with parents doing so much follow-up at home. I had an interview with the founder of the National Association for Primary Education. And he was talking about the fact that we are all a community and basically his idea of, of really 
important education, I think, is that we have the child at the centre. <laughs> and it all has to be a conversation from the parents, from the school, from the community, all around to support the children that are in our care and, and that we're, we're learning from as we're going through. And, and your situation is intriguing to me because, as you've just explained, you have all of those facets and you have the experience in all of those things. But it's the fact that every person's situation is different, isn't it? Sometimes mm -hmm. you might have more support from the school because they don't have it at home. Mm -hmm. It might be that you have it at home because the parents are just wanting to really support, but maybe it doesn't quite work the same in school or, or vice versa or any sort of percentages of, of those mm -hmm. particular things. So I'm, I'm interested to sort of understand from your experience kind of how that kind of relationship works and if there is a, a best foot forward in that scenario yeah. or whether it is just a question of this particular situation with this particular child will look like this and it will be very different for everyone else and personalised learning I think is is so key for everybody whether no matter where your sort of strengths and your weaknesses lie. Absolutely and just even the term right there personalised learning is as a speech pathologist, we have the opportunity to have these very individualized relationships and, and skill sets that we're using with each child. And so we're able to develop that. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, my focus obviously within my career is communication and it really has spilled over into my understanding and my appreciation for people though. And so when you're looking at parents in different settings and kind of what how we keep kids as the center and how we successfully navigate that in different situations i really and it's it's so simple but communication with parents is so key and if if we're in a setting and we have assumptions that are being made about you know whether that's good or bad um, it can really interfere with things being child-centered and so really I approach it from the understanding of all parents are trying their best. And so as educators, we're trying our best. And if we're recognizing and respecting that even if a home environment is a little non-traditional and homework isn't coming back, if home programs aren't followed through, you know, parents are really trying their best and that respect toward them and how how can I help versus kind of like you're in trouble because you're not doing the things I need you to do. And I have so many lovely parent relationships. Um, and, and, you know, even things that can be really sticky in terms of you know, special ed paperwork and the meetings and logistics and legalities and things that can be very tricky. Um, really, it's all navigated through communication, right? So as long as we all know that we're trying our best for this child and that we're coming from that as our point of interest, then when you kind of take that step out and you're having that conversation, it's not about, it's not about anything else except for the child. And so I think that in, in general, us using that lens and also really that feeding through to kids where, you know, we're showing kids that communication is so important and skills are important and <laughs> your interaction with someone will really dictate how those skills are perceived. And if there's a sense of arrogance behind it, if there's a sense of, um, you know, I, I'm not really interested in this. I and mean, we talk a lot with kids about body language and about, you know, just how those nonverbal pieces of communication and how that can affect 
someone's experience of the conversation. And so whether that's in, you know, a seven-year-old or someone who's entering the workplace and that's an interview setting, or even just if their coworkers enjoy working with them, (laughs) communication (laughs) is such a big deal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It really is. And I just... Uh, what came across then is that that generosity of spirit you know starting from the point that everybody's doing the best they can because i think a lot of the time when like say those communication issues may arise it's because people are feeling vulnerable or they're they're, they're Mm -hmm. feeling like they're going to get into trouble or they're not doing it right or they're scared or whatever those fear factors are and i think like say the way you come across as like say that generosity of spirit that understanding we know you're doing everything you possibly can we're here to support and to nurture what's going on that must just put those defenses right down and then like you say then you've got much more that you can develop quickly I guess and and I think that's really important as well in terms of you get the most out of the time and the situation that you're that you're in and um and and I really love that, and I, and I think it's something which is often overlooked because we're all so busy. We're all so busy trying to be here, do this, do the mm-hmm. other. You know, make everything work. In like you said, in that kind of practical way. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's organising or meetings mm-hmm. or legal or whatever it is. <laughs> um, but to actually have make sure that when you're having those conversations or those interactions, it's very personal. Yes. Then then I just love the feeling of that, and I'm not sure that's something that we all kind of take on board for every single conversation that we're having. And I guess that's probably where I'm thinking in, in, in yeah. terms of, of what I'm mentioning here, it's the fact that every single word, every single conversation, every mm-hmm. single interaction, if you've got enough breath in your body just to take that breath and then be able to move that conversation in that direction, that's got to be a wonderful starting point. Right. Well, and I feel like it's so, thank you. And I really feel like it parallels our message towards kids as well that, um, you know, people first you might have things you need to do you might have a phone in your hand and you think checking it is more important than the conversation in front of you (laughs) um and and it's not people first and so my children are three and six they're still very young and we're fairly technology free at home and anytime they're doing something and not looking up, you know, we always say people first and they, you know, they kind of know that whatever you think you're doing that you think is important, people around you are much more important. And that conversation that's presenting itself is, is the priority in that moment right then, not the thing that you think you need to be doing and taking the time to acknowledge that. And, um, and, you know, I, I think most of us in, you know, as educators, as parents, we all like to reinforce what's going well and to praise things. And we're usually so good at doing that with kids and especially in the classroom setting, you know, really highlighting things that are going well. And even if our brain isn't going there first, but kind of like, okay, (laughs) here's the things this child is doing well. Um, And I think it's fun to do that same thing with parents. You know, as a parent, we don't often get a good job. You know, no one's there saying, wow, you really did a great job taking the time to sit down and explain this to your child or to teach them this life lesson or, you know, whether it's school related or just kind of life related. And so as an educator, what a fabulous thing to be able to do. And and we know from, I mean, not to take everything for in child development, but just because that's my area of focus, um, 
you know, the way we get carryover of skill or generalization of anything is to specifically praise what it is that we want more of. And so if you take that and move that into, say, an adult type situation, if it's, you know, say you did an an amazing job and, you know, in your job, you formulated, you know, this really I don't know, wonderful response via email. And someone said, good job. That feels good. Also, you don't know exactly what to do again that next time versus if someone said, I really love how you broke that down into three categories. And that was just so clear. And I really loved the layout of that. It's so simple to add that extra piece. And now I know next time that's what exactly what I'm going to do. Of course I'll do that. You know, so when we're talking to parents and we're saying, you know, I love that you took the time to do this. I could tell that, uh, you know, just any of those things. I think it's so neat for parents to feel good <laughs> about the work yeah. they're doing because it's <laughs> yeah. so much work. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I, and I've, 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 especially, I think it's, I don't know if it's this term related because of, of everything we've been through this year, um, sort of towards the end of 2020 here as we're recording but um, I've had quite a few conversations with children in, in my music lessons that I've been doing where they've there's been lots of sorry sorry is, is they'd make mm-hmm. a mistake and we have this big conversation about the learning process and, and I've talked a lot about that on the on the podcast before but I think what I started to do differently was I understand that you've made a mistake and therefore and you're concerned about that. I'm not and we talk mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> but uh, but but that my my conversation started with do you know what I loved this 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 and mm-hmm. this you know I loved that you knew you made a mistake. I loved that you were all you were automatically able to do this or that yes. you'd learned this from last week or whatever. And so even though it doesn't I don't know it didn't take away from the fact that they were still struggling with the fact they've made a mistake and that's kind of a longer journey and a, and a longer kind of, of process for them but they started with you know five or six positives of something which they thought was only negative and and I've not really quite thought about it in the same kind of way but it's definitely something which I've done more on recently and I think you uh, you explained it in that sort of great mm-hmm. succinct way where it kind of makes sense now. Well, and just the idea of reframing for kids is so powerful and taking something that is a very real feeling and channeling that in the way that we would like them to to kind of log it and remember it. And so if their kind of take-home feeling is, oh, I'm sorry I messed up. I'm sorry I messed up. That's such a different thing than my response is, I'm sorry. But the reframe is, I love that you keep trying. You are such a hard worker. I love watching you try, try, and try. And then you get it. And it's so amazing to watch that process happen. And then the feeling that's kind of logged in that child isn't the, I'm sorry, even though that was their first response. It was, I'm a really hard worker. And when I keep trying, I, I do it. And just that positive reframe on things and how simple it is, yet how powerful it is. Um, I use the term I'm noticing often. and, And I love that it kind of takes my opinion out of it. But just it kind of, you know, let, let's look at what's happening. You know, I'm noticing that you're working really hard on that. And it seems kind of frustrating how cool that you keep trying, you know, or I'm noticing that you're trying to do a lot with your body right now. And you're kind of trying to do this and have a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pick one show, you know, Um, but there's something neat about, you know, just children aren't programmed to kind of have that metacognitive piece where they can take themselves outside of the situation and look at it. And so we get to, 
because we we are the ones there looking at them, you know, really doing phenomenal things. And we get to kind of have those observations that really can be so neat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you take me into that a little bit yeah. more? Because yeah. I'm always fascinated between the idea of of the child development in terms of what you can expect in that yes. scenario across different age groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm also a believer that even if they don't understand it naturally or it's not where their development is if you never talk about it then they never become aware of it um and 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 i love the word noticing because it is that you know even if it's noticing that your thought process was this or you understand Mm -hmm. all this is going on or you know you might not be able to do anything about it straight away but the noticing is important because it takes you to a completely different level in connection with yourself and therefore that just opens up a whole new world as well so i'll be really interested Mm -hmm. to, to hear your thoughts on that yeah, and I love just this whole area of child development is so interesting to me. And and I think it's because we have so much power to shape little moments with very little energy. And if we know what it is we're doing and what our goal is, it really takes very little, <laughs> which as a parent <laughs> that's exhausted, <laughs> um, give me some little nuggets and things. Uh, so Piaget's stages of cognitive development are really key in that. And so we know right around six and a half, seven, there's a cognitive shift. And so before that, it really is highly unlikely that a child is self-monitoring their own body in their space and that they're paying attention to things in that way. And so as a speech pathologist that works so closely with stuttering and children who stutter, um, that ends up being a really key piece in how how we select kind of what strategies are best for this child because asking a child to do something different in their talking while they're in that stage is not a realistic expectation you know even for us as adults with adult cognition to be able to say okay well you know as you're talking I'd like you to put in this amount of pauses and i'd like you to do this on this sound and it, that really takes away from the language formulation piece and and we're grown. <laughs> we're very, you know, we're able to, we're, our formulation is so solid at this point. Um, you know, so for kids, I'd say six and a half, seven and under is where the I'm noticing or the observations are so key because it helps us give them some information about what their body is doing. And, um, you know, specifically when, children seem to be overstimulated or, you know, there's just kind of like a lot. And so the word we use in our industry is regulated, like they're not regulated that, you know, you can just kind of see that they're going too fast, that their body isn't, you know, they're kind of all over the place. And it would almost be like what people would describe as ADHD or that kind of attention type thing because they're bouncing all over. And really oftentimes it's regulation. They're not regulated. They're processing too much. They're needing you know, inputs. And um, for us to just kind of have that observation, the, you know, something, I mean, I say that <laughs> in, my, in my example, and I say that I'm noticing your body has a lot of, th- you know, it's really moving a lot during this conversation. Let's find a spot to sit 
so you can finish telling me about this. Or I'm noticing that you're looking, you know, my office, I have this giant wall of games and, you know, as kids come in, they're so excited about it. And so if I'm kind of like, hey, you know, tell me about, you know, whatever it is, it's kind of what you did this weekend. I heard you guys went somewhere. Um, And they're kind of looking at the games and trying to tell me something. They're really split. And so that's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if this child is five, of course they're excited about the games. <laughs> so, you know, then I often will say that's, you know, that I'm noticing your body is looking at the games and trying to answer my question. Let's figure out which one. I'm going to give you a few seconds to look at all the games. We will decide the games. Okay, now come back. We're going to finish this conversation and then we'll go pick our game. Um, and then with kids kind of seven to about 12, 13, there's that, that growth, you know, is really so neat because they're observing and paying attention to what's happening around them. And so that's oftentimes like right around seven and eight is when you start getting a lot of really perceptive questions from kids about things they've either noticed that are, um, you know, different about friends or things that they're paying attention to, like someone's response to them or just some of those nonverbal things that really from before they were, they were kind of just, I lovingly call it the bulldozer personality when they're younger, like they're coming through, they're not really paying attention to what's (laughs) happening. They're just there and they're in your face about it. They get what they need. Um, Yeah. And so I think there's something so neat about looking at those different stages. I oftentimes for kids in the kind of seven to 12 year old range will ask kind of permission, you know, can I tell you something that I was noticing? And so I phrase it that way so that it just kind of gives you that opportunity to have them give you permission, which, you know, just acknowledges their age a little bit. And they're kind of like, yeah, what were you, yeah. <laughs> like, what is that? What are you yeah. noticing? Because <laughs> yeah, they're inquisitive then as well, like you say, because they're already opening up those doors for you. <laughs> yeah. So there is, there's so much neat, um, you know, and that is one of the things that really drove me to my practice was I was working full-time in the schools and had seen the, the need for basically in-house specialists within the school setting. And, you know, there's, there's no reason we all need to be generalists. If we have people that are really good, let's utilize those people. And so for the district I was in, we had roughly 100 schools and 75 speech pathologists. And so I had laid out a framework and piloted it. And and it was so effective because all of the kids that were on caseloads for stuttering were then given the opportunity to have kind of more specialized support. And the numbers went down drastically. So, you know, we had one of the caseloads that I, or um, case studies I had presented was a child that had risk factors for continued stuttering, which would likely be he was, I think, second grade when he was first determined eligible in the schools to receive speech therapy. And he likely would have gone all the way through middle school, you know, with weekly services. And we piloted that 
he had 30 minutes, you know, some of it was group, some of it was individual, just like every, you know, public school here, you know, it wasn't special treatment. And within one quarter, he was done and ready to be dismissed back. And you look at the trajectory of his life and his confidence level. And he was a child who was um, pulling back in class and not answering questions because he felt like he might stutter. And he'd raise his hand and get called on and then feel it starting to get stuck and then say, never mind. And so then, you know, as I'm talking to a teacher saying, do you notice him saying, I don't know, or never mind? She goes, yeah, I just feel like he's kind of one of those impulsive kids who raises his hand, but doesn't really have an answer. And so we kind of talked through it. Um, And then looking at the effectiveness, I was kind of like, gosh, I really need to figure out a way to do this in a in in a more kind of powerful way for kids. And um so that was Central Valley Stuttering Centers, my my practice. Um, and, and again, I still have time in the schools too, but it's been really neat because I get to be a resource for speech pathologists in the schools and for kids directly, which has been neat. And then whenever we jump into the junior authors program, um, that kind of has its own, you know, separate fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, let, let's let's do that. Let, let's t- tell us about that transition and, and the environment that you're in that actually yeah. opened all that doors. Yeah, the uh, so I grew up in Central California and in a small mountain community, and the I'm now back in in the general area um, where where I live now with my husband and kids, and in let's see, it was. August, so in the end of summer, there was a fire that started, and it was right where I mean, just all of our our family, friends, uh, you know, everyone that we knew, you know, was up in that same area, and it just started spreading and spreading, and so they evacuated everyone. Which in California, it's not uncommon to be evacuated. And so that in and of itself isn't necessarily, I mean, if it's you that's evacuating, you're feeling fearful, you know, of what if, but oftentimes you've evacuated and everything has been fine. So in a sense, you're desensitized to kind of, we know the process, we know how to do this. And so they evacuated everyone and, you know, kind of coming down the hill and it started spreading and spreading. And so many of the people who first evacuated had no idea that the fire was really, I mean, no one had any idea the fire was going to spread so quickly. And so they didn't get to go back because the roads were closed and then their homes were gone. And so it, it kept traveling. It ended up being the largest recorded wildfire in California history. I mean, it was just so destructive and giant. So as you know, in that moment, we were, you know, still amidst everything COVID and distance learning. And then these families have evacuated and then found out they've lost their home. And I was looking at it through the lens of a parent and thinking, I cannot even imagine raising young kids in this moment and trying to survive as a person, <laughs> you know, like, because 
And maybe it's that side of me too that is just such a um, cheerleader for young kids and kind of like, gosh, I wish I could just take all of these kids and have these really sweet, wonderful conversations with them because parents are overwhelmed. And, and of course, I would be too, but that's a way I can help. I can help by supporting these kids and how am I going to do that? And it's not really realistic that I, in the middle of COVID, have these wonderful conversations with all of them, even though I'd like to. But but how am I going to do that? So anyhow, the fire, the a lot of destruction happened that Monday and Tuesday. And I woke up Wednesday and was like, okay, I'm going to write a children's book. Um, because I use, as a speech pathologist, I use books to help teach things. And we pull messages out. We use that basic as a kind of our catalyst for a conversation. And so I thought, well, what better way for me to kind of package up this little conversation that I'd like to have? And so I wrote a book that morning. And then I was kind of like, okay, well, now I need to learn how to publish a book because that's new. <laughs> <laughs> and so over those next few weeks, I took – I mean, it's, I, I just dove right in and took, you know, however many courses and was, you know, thinking, okay, well, we'll make this good. We're not going to present these kids with a book that isn't really, really well done. And as I was learning about it, I thought, this is fascinating. And I can't not involve kids in the making of the book, you know, and, and then it really just made so much sense to me that is it more important to present them with this perfect final product or for them to be a part of building it and really be involved and have the memory attached with, you know, having their voice heard and feeling empowered and being a part of the journey and seeing behind the scenes. And so that concept kind of came to me on, I think it was a Friday. And so Saturday I made a website and then created a voting based platform on Sunday and we launched Monday and we just went right into it. And so the concept with junior authors program is that kids get to vote and be a part of making the book itself. And so most of it so far has been illustration-based voting. And so the it, character selection, things for the setting, things that would go into the illustrations. And there's three choices. And so we started with it as a very local piece, you know, to and all of it is to support. So junior authors is really kind of the, the concept of we're empowering kids to be a part of it. And within that, we have the local kids who lost homes as kind of our core nucleus. And so they get to they get to have their name in the books as junior authors. They have a drawing of their home that within the book, there's kind of like a collage. And so they get to have that and, you know, just really something that's that's kind of cemented in their memory and that they are really a part of. Um, but it started local and then it was just so wonderful that we kind of gained momentum. And then all of a sudden there were, you know, other states involved and then other countries involved. And so at this point we now have, you know, a global kind of contribution to this wonderful fundraising, you know, this, this um, let's help these kids who lost their home. And, so every week I update um, the map for the kids here and show, you know, who all is participating around the world. And it's such a neat visual for them to see, you know, we have support from 
all around. And this isn't, you know, it is local. And then there's this piece of we have um, it, just a sense of community that's really, I think, kind of neat right now with everything still closed down. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it just sounds so wonderful. And I, um, I think what my biggest takeaway from it is that I love the fact that you're, you're using your understanding, obviously your empathy and your your willingness to want to support people, but with the skills that you've got, you know. Um, and I think for anyone that's really not sure about where their future lies, you know, if you want it to be different than where you are now, it's just understanding who you are, what you do day to day, whether that's within the education system or not. Um, and then, and, and what can I do? You know, it might not be that, like you said, some of those things you could obviously do already and some of those things you had to learn. Yes. But I think when there's a reason for yes. doing it and there's, and like I say, you just pull everyone in and once that community starts to, to feel like you're part of it and you're mm -hmm. giving it to that, then then the world literally is your oyster, which as you said, is, is really been the case. And, it, and it's, it, thank you. It, it's been really rewarding for me too. And, you know, I think any of us as parents and as educators, you know, we're so busy that oftentimes we want things to look different and yet it's really hard to carve out the time. And uh, had someone, you know, two or three months ago said, you know, would you be willing to put in, you know, an additional 40 hours a week <laughs> without pay to create this thing? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would have said, well, there's no way I can fit that in. There's, I am already booked <laughs> and feeling yes, like I'm at the children end. As Yes, well, yeah. yes. And, um, you know, I think there's just something really neat about, knowing what it is you can bring to a situation and then creating a way to do that and then learning. And, and I'm finding that my slump, my COVID slump, you know, it really took a turn because how fun when you're inspired to do something that you feel is helpful and, and important. And the, the parallel there is that as I was starting to kind of get reinvigorated, like, okay, I can do something instead of only having things I can't do during this period of time. Mm -hmm. What can I do? What can I, you know, what fuels me in that way? And, um, and the parallel there was that, okay, well, we have so many kids that for the last year, we've told them what they can't do. So let's give them something they can do that they get to do, not something they have to do. And so then I kind of launched a whole curriculum-based kind of supplement for the book. And so the teachers that have been using the voting-based platform in their classroom then have grade-level appropriate activities to be doing within their classroom. And it's been so phenomenal the so our illustrators in France, she's wonderful. And now that we kind of have a team of people that can help create things, it really is kind of like teachers get to decide what they want. And then within reason, we can create it and then they can have that for their classes. So one of the things I'll make a landing page for your listeners, um, it will be juniorauthorsprogram.com slash um, education on fire. And I'll put a request in there. And so any teachers or educators that are listening, they can submit a request for something that would be helpful for their students. And we'd be happy to do that. Um, but it, the feedback has been that kids want to get their work done 
in school so that they can do their fun work. <laughs> and it's all educationally based and everything is, you know, exactly aligned with for us in California, our state standards. And, you know, it's the same things, but it has our characters on it. It has, you know, and it's so funny seeing kids so interested. I, I shouldn't say funny. It's built that way. Um to really kind of be intriguing and to be inspiring and to feel like, oh, I'm contributing to this book. And so we're, you know, there's there's different ways that they get to contribute. We have an Ask the Author Live once a week. And so all kids get to submit questions and and then we talk about it. And it can be about publishing a book or about just the writing process or about this storyline or about the kids in the fire. You know, anything is all fair game. And the questions that we get are so sweet and so hilarious. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're anything from, you know, do you do a sloppy copy, which I hadn't heard that term before, but, you know, just <laughs> – <laughs> to um, can we put a reptile in this story? You know, I mean, that's just there's it's so fun for me. And so, again, I'll, I'll put that on our link. I'll put uh, for any parents or, or educators, they can have their child submit a question. So it'll be the juniorauthorsprogram.com slash education on fire. And I'll um, add a little spot where they can put um, their question in and then we can address it on our next Ask the Author Live. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's that's such a, a generous thing to do. And and just so I've got it really clear in my mind, mm-hmm. um, is it kind of like you're creating a library? There's going to be multiple books based on all of these situations and all these things doing, or are you just continuing an ever expanding story? Oh, I love that concept of like ongoing story. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the story that we're currently working on is called the, the title is Where's My House, and so it's a story of a girl and her dog, and the dog loses his dog house in a fire, and so it validates some of those feelings and the things that happen, and then really looks at the rebuild and the sense of community and kind of how we can all contribute. And one of the things that I had built into the story that I really love is that the girl does not have things. She's looking around and she's not kind of like, oh, I have a wealth of all of these things to contribute. But she looks around and she figures out what she can do. And then she builds a house for the dog. And then she's continuing to look around and notice, coming back to, I'm noticing (laughs) Um, that there's someone else in need. And I don't feel like I have very much left, but what can I do? And the value in us doing that, you know, um, so that is this story. And then as we were doing Ask the Author Lives, we had questions from kids saying, okay, can we do another book? And so I said, well, sure. Now I, I know how to do it now. So let's jump in. And so I think there's a fun sense of spontaneity to it and kind of just being along for the ride and guiding it just like we do as as educators and parents, you know, so that it kind of I picture almost the bowling alley with the bumpers, you know, kind of we keep it within <laughs> yeah, <laughs> within a general yeah. kind of guideline, but that there should be some wiggle room and that kids should have a chance to weigh in and to guide where things go. And that now that I know how to do this, let's jump in and kind of see where it goes. And I'm happy to help, you know, build in some really important messages. And I think that 
one of the reasons I love books so much is that they can be really fun and have really powerful messages. And so if my goal is to kind of share some of these things, and it kind of ties in with the concept for your book, which I love, uh, you know, kind of building in legacy and and kind of what is it that you want kids to know and Mm -hmm. that we get to kind of within the context of a fun, empowering activity, give some of those life lessons and some of the things that we'd really like to talk about that, you know, it doesn't focus on those, but they're embedded. And so I kind of, you know, they're like little conversational pockets through the story. They just kind of lend themselves to those. So, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. And I think, um, and I think you're absolutely right. It's kind of, the, I mean, the noticing thing is obviously the theme of today, but it's that kind of the, the concept of kind of sharing these life lessons or things that are happening. It's just, you know, just noticing that this is something which someone else has been through that you mm-hmm. might recognize within yourself, like mm-hmm. you said. And, and, you know, in terms of, of what you've just been talking about, you know, anybody that's had to move, that's lost their house, that's been, un, you know, been through that kind of trauma, they're going to obviously relate to it. Um, in a really direct way but like I say as you start to then have these broader lessons and understanding then more people can mm-hmm. can sort of relate to that as well so so let's finish off with mm-hmm. a piece of advice that you were given or something that you would and a bit of advice you would give your younger self that people might take away um, in, in that kind of spirit of exactly what oh. you were just describing uh, of being able to relate to my younger self I think it would be to to know your strengths and it's so easy to focus on the things you're not good at because just as a child those are the things that you pay attention to the most and and to know the things you're good at and to enjoy those and to really enjoy being good at those and um you know and I think that yeah. And I think that's just kind of me as a professional now looking back, you know, I, I wish I could have given that to my younger self of, you know, gosh, you're really good at blank. And I feel like I was in my thirties before, you know, someone said that to me and I was like, I am. Wow. <laughs> like, how did it take that long? <laughs> yeah. And on the flip side, it's that I'm really not good at this. So therefore let someone else do that right? for me. Yes, and I'll focus exactly. on that, you know, and then all of a sudden this kind of world of possibility always seems to open up doesn't it in Absolutely. terms of oh, if I'd only understood this before <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I always have that kind of you know like, and, and I love what you were saying before about the, the, the brain and, and the child development idea because there are certain stages where children and young people are, you know you get it or you don't because of those things yes. um, but that's not a reason not to say or and and just to sort of almost round up the whole thing, I love the idea of the of the bowling alley because it's as the professionals, as the elders, as the parents, having that global idea of of what we think is important in terms mm-hmm. of sort of almost holding your arms around everyone to keep mm-hmm. them safe, but to give them enough wriggle room to be expressive to learn what they need to learn for themselves. Absolutely. And and I think it's that combination of everything which then just gives everyone that personalised learning, but within mm-hmm. an environment where they can thrive and I think you know the more we can do that in whichever way and I think this program is one which just does it beautifully for all the right reasons I think it's absolutely fantastic thank you and I love your summary of that right there that's beautiful yeah Brilliant. I'm inspired so, <laughs> oh excellent that's what that, that, that's why we're here just to share these stories and you know hopefully make a difference and um so 
let's just finish up again yes. with with that website address yes. so people can check it out and and find out mm-hmm. as much information as they need yes so juniorauthorsprogram.com will have everything people need to jump on and and at any given time people can get on and vote and the votes are you know 10 seconds each there it's three pictures that kids choose from we have kids from two years old all the way up through you know middle school 12 13 14 um so yeah and there's the links for ask the author live there's all the materials are available and they're categorized by ages and so everyone really has you know access to the the pieces that we've created there are direct things that are available for teachers and like i said i'll create the landing page so we'll have juniorauthorsprogram.com slash education on fire and on those we'll have a couple of um, free downloads for teachers we'll have the um, the link for teachers to be able to submit requests for materials and we'll also have the links for parents and educators to have their kids submit questions for ask the author live so that way they can just be engaged and it's free it's fun it's it's a, i don't know it's, it's just been a really great journey Fantastic. Well, Susie, thank you so much for sharing your your wisdom, your experience and, and your knowledge of all this. And thank you for all the great work you're doing. And um, you. I can't wait to, to share this with as many people as we can. So, yeah, have a fantastic day and um, yeah, look forward to finding out how this journey continues. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.